we are walking through, as you know, if you've been coming, uh, biblical themes. That's kind of been the purpose uh, or the, the theme of this semester. Where we've been taking some of the major themes throughout the scriptures and tracing them from Genesis to Revelation and asking, okay, how does this apply to us? How does this change our lives? Because one of the things we want to see over and over and over and over again, what we want to saturate our minds with is the reality that the Bible is not a random collection of 66 books that just kind of make the Christian you know, religious textbook, but rather is one story that is ultimately about God's Son, that is ultimately about Jesus, that everything is ultimately about exalting Him. As we'll see today, creation itself was through Him and for Him. And seeing that reality, that the Bible is ultimately about Jesus, that creation is ultimately about Jesus, is actually what's best for us. When we can see that we're not the point, right? God doesn't exist for us. Rather, we exist for him to exalt the name of his son. We can see ourselves rightly and actually rest and actually glory in the reality that his son is the point. So we've been looking at all of these themes and seeing that in every single theme. In the kingdom, we've seen that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. As we looked at the covenant, we see he's the ultimate covenant keeper who brings about the new covenant where we, uni- we are united to him and all of God's promises are yes and amen in him. We saw last week that he is the God of all beauty, right? He redefines what beauty is and displays it before our eyes. And today, We are going to look at a theme that is dear to me, uh, the theme of children of God. And let me just warn you, uh, I have been known uh, to, when I encounter a beautiful truth about God, a beautiful reality of the gospel, I've been known to shed a tear or two. Let me warn you, uh, there is nothing more precious to me than what we're going to talk about today. There has been Nothing that has been so life-changing, so transforming to me than what we're going to talk about today. So just buckle up. We're going to do our best, right, to get through certain sections, uh, but we're going to trace as we normally have. We're going to start in creation and we're going to end in Revelation and have some application points at the end. I'm going to move through the Old Testament a bit quicker than we normally do so that we can just sit in this kind of New Testament reality as long as we possibly can. But let's start in Genesis 1, where we start every week. Creation. So when you open the pages of your Bible, you see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and you see him, you know, separating light and darkness and filling the skies with the moon and the sun and stars, and then beginning to fill the land with uh, trees. And then there's this little phrase that you see throughout uh, Genesis 1, trees after their own kinds and birds after their own kinds, and plants after their own kinds, and fish after their own kinds, and animals, beasts after their own kinds. So you see he's creating animals, kind of the original, and then says, be fruitful and multiply after your own kind. And then we come, as you see that pattern kind of descending through Genesis 1, we come to God saying, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. So if you're following the pattern of Genesis 1, it's as if God is saying, let us make man after our own kind, after our own image, after our own likeness. And he scoops up dirt and molds Adam, and eventually we'll take a rib from Adam and mold Eve. And we see being made in the image of God means you're, in a sense, like God. You image God. You're after God's own kind. And then Genesis 5 is going to connect it to our theme today, uh, being children of God. So you're made in the image of God, you represent God, you're like God, but then look at Genesis 5, 1 through 3, first genealogy we get in the Bible. And this is the book of the genealogies of Adam. When Adam, or sorry, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. Verse 3. Then Adam lived 130 years. He fathered a son in his own image after his, or sorry, in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So you see the connection there. Adam is made in the image of likeness of God. Seth is made in the image and likeness of Adam. And so what we're kind of seeing here is a connection of being made in the image of God means you're like a child of God like a child of God. Luke 3 will make this explicit. Matthew, we we started off the Gospel of Matthew with a long genealogy, starting from Abraham and working down to Jesus. Luke has his own genealogy, but he starts from Jesus and works all the way back up 
to Adam. Luke 3, 23. When Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Skip several verses. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay, so you see this sort of analogy, this picture of Adam and Eve, and as a result, all creation being made in the likeness of God means you are, in a sense, like the children of God. Roy Siampa, who's a biblical scholar at the University of Samford, says this. The language, speaking of this, being made in the image of God means you're like a child of God. Language is being stretched here as a literal son of God is certainly not in view, but nevertheless, the writer is using an analogy to make a point. Okay, so we'll see this all throughout the Old Testament. Those made in the image of likeness of God, human beings are like children of God. It's kind of an analogy for uh, closeness with God. And it's a way to illustrate calling God like our Father is a way to illustrate his kind of fatherly care. And key to this is the idea that children are meant to represent their father. Adam and Eve were created and put in the garden, but they were given a mandate, given a purpose to fill the earth and subdue it for the glory of his name. Right, as they, as his kind of children, were meant to fill the earth, they were meant to represent their father. As they went out and worked the world, it was meant to praise his glorious name. They weren't just supposed to be kind of soldiers who just follow orders. Rather, their obedience to him was meant to display a love for their father-like God, right, who walked with them in the cool of the day. So we see that in creation, this kind of link, this analogy of uh, God's father-likeness and our child-likeness of those being made into his image. But then, as you know, again, hopefully you're, you're getting used to the biblical storyline. doesn't get very far until we slam into Genesis 3 and we see those uh, children of God, Adam and Eve, rebel. They're sent out of God's presence and they lose his father-like nearness. They lose the kind of father-like fellowship. The nearness to God that made Eden a paradise is lost as they're sent away from his presence. And though they're still in the image of God that's not destroyed or taken away, the fellowship that that was meant to represent is gone. In fact, now that we are sinful by nature, we are in a sense sons and daughters of a different father. 1 John 3.10, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. So you got two options. You can be children of God or you can be children of the devil. Here's how you know. Are you righteous? If you're righteous, you're a child of God. If you're not, you are a child of the evil one. And what does the scripture say about Every human being outside of Christ, there is no one who is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks God. And so post-Genesis 3, you and I, as children of Adam, are by our very nature, what does Ephesians 2 say, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, or 1 John 3, children of the devil, children of the evil one. So not only have we lost our closeness with our father like God, we're now children of wrath, we're sons of disobedience, but again, God doesn't leave it there. Genesis 3.15, you'll hear this almost in every single teaching that we do because it's such a key passage. God does not simply say, you're exiled, you're gone, I'm leaving it there. Rather, he promises one day an offspring or a child, if you will, will come. He'll crush the head of the evil one and he'll restore the children of God. He'll kind of undo all the serpent's effects and restore what was lost. Okay, so we're moving forward. And we see as God launches out on that plan of redemption throughout the Old Testament, he primarily will call Abraham and say, through your family, will this Genesis 3.15 promise be realized? And so as God makes a covenant with Abraham, I'm going to redeem the whole world through you. Through you will come this seed, I promise, promised in Genesis 3.15. His covenant people from that point forward will often be called his children. We kind of see the analogy restored in his covenant people. Take Israel, for example. you got Abraham, Abraham's kids, which is the nation of Israel. And when God calls Moses to send him before Pharaoh to tell him to let them go, he says this in Exodus 4.22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. 
And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Okay, you see that restoration of this kind of childlike language. So Israel, kind of like Adam, is called a son. And notice, he's called to serve God. There's a sense here in which Israel is the new Adam, the children of God that are meant to go and serve God in the land and display what does it look like to be ruled by God? What does it look like to be under God's reign and to uh, be his people? And in fact, that, that sort of childlike relationship is often affirmed by the phrase you see all throughout the Old Testament, which is this, you shall be my God and I will be your people. Or rather, God saying to Israel, you will be my people and I will be your God. But, unfortunately, Israel, the new Adam, follows in the old Adam's footsteps. As Adam rebelled and fails to represent his father like God, so Israel, the covenant children of God, failed to represent God to the world. Hosea 11, 1 through 3. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to idols. So they failed to represent God. They rebel against him. And so like Adam, like Adam lost his father-like closeness with God, Israel is also sent out of their land, Hosea 1.8. When she had weaned no mercy, it's a child that was born, quite the name. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. So that statement, I will be your God, you will be my people, that was kind of a representation of this father-children-like relationship. God says it's gone as a result of your rebellion. But again, God being merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love promises redemption in the Old Testament for his children. Hosea, again, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So there's this promise. Redemption, your redemption will involve a restoration. You will be called children of the living God. And so that's kind of a a very quick summary. Again, I want to spend a lot of time in the New Testament of the Old Testament, you see this language applied that is an analogy. It's meant to, again, illustrate God's father-like care for his people. It's meant to show kind of covenant closeness between us and God. But notice, nobody, 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 nobody in Israel would have ever dared said, God is my father. In fact, Jesus says that in John 5, and the Pharisees decide at that point, we're going to kill this guy because it was the height of blasphemy. It's an analogy. It's meant to represent closeness. No one would have ever taken it literally, say it that way. So we have this kind of analogy of covenant closeness. Children of God, uh, again, over and over again, fail to represent him and therefore lose this sort of father-like fellowship. But again, there's this promise of redemption that one day a child will come and restore the children. He'll crush the heat of the serpent and he'll restore where we will be called children of the living God, though that's kind of unclear what that means. And before we get into the New Testament, there's one more thing we haven't seen yet. Alongside Adam as a child of God and alongside Israel as a child of God, there's another son that you kind of see hints of. You see shadows of all throughout the Old Testament. He'll kind of pop up quickly and then fade into the background that just is kind of meant to leave you with some question marks. So let's look at a couple of these. This is by no means exhaustive. Genesis 1, let us, plural, Make man in our, plural, image. Why the plural? Is it God's just talking to the angels? Well, no. Angels aren't made in the image of God. He can't say our image to the angels, but we're not told in Genesis. So we just kind of left with a question mark. Psalm 2. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So David's never called God's son. Angels, according to Hebrews 13, are never called God's son. So who's this guy? Again, we're left with some question marks. There's this son that pops up that we're meant to kiss, right? we're meant to submit to. The Lord has begotten him. He's God's son, but then he quickly fades into the background. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter actually brings this up in one of his first sermons. He says, God calls somebody else Lord. David writing this says, my God called my Lord or told my Lord, sit at my right hand. And Peter said, who's he talking to? Who's this guy? Is this the Psalm 2 guy? Is this the Genesis 1 guy? Daniel 7, last picture I'll give. Daniel sees this vision of uh, the ancient of days, God coming and fire going out before him. And he sits on his throne and these four beasts show up that are the kingdoms of the world. And then we see this in verse 13. And I saw in the, in the night visions and behold, the clouds of the heavens, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So you see God and all the kings before him, and then this other person show up, and that person is given an eternal kingdom. We're not told who he is. Right again, some question marks. All throughout the Old Testament, there's these little hints. There's these little shadows that pop up. And of course, as we've seen throughout Matthew, what is a shadow in the Old Testament is made clear. The New Testament turned the lights on, and we can see clearly what the Old Testament has been hinted at. And so you open the pages of the New Testament and enter Jesus Enter Jesus Christ. And one of the things we've seen throughout other uh, passages is he succeeds everywhere that Adam and Israel fail. He's the last Adam, right? Where from Adam comes death, from him comes life. Everywhere that Adam failed and his temptation from the enemy, Jesus succeeds. Everywhere that Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. So he is a childlike servant that actually succeeds where they fail. But that is not the most incredible, earth-shattering reality of Jesus' childlikeness. Rather, as he comes and reveals who he really is, we learn he is not just a son like Adam or a son like Israel, right? This is not another analogy. This is not just another label of covenant closeness. Rather, he is the actual true, real, eternal son of the living God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We see this reality about Jesus. He's not just the Messiah, He's not just the savior. He's not just the king. He's not just the ultimate priest. He's not just the Passover lamb. He is the eternal son of the living God who has always been at the father's side. He comes to reveal he is the son of the living God who has always been. Which, when you're faced with that reality, all of a sudden, everything you thought you knew from Genesis to Malachi, you have to rethink Everything you thought you had a grasp on, you have to rethink once you see this reality that Jesus isn't just a savior who will be a king, but rather the eternal son who's come down from his father's side to be a savior who will be the eternal king. You have to rethink creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, John 1 says, wait, on, hang on a minute. Let me shed some light on that. Let us make man in our own image. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
So all of a sudden, we can never read Genesis 1 the same again. As the Father says, let there be light, the Son goes forth and creates everything. Everything was made through him. There was not a thing made that he did not make. Colossians 1, 16 through 18, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is in the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. All things were made through him. All things were made for him. God said, let there be light for the preeminence and the glory of his son. He holds all things together. Your heart has another rhythm because God holds it together. And by God, I mean the eternal son. We have to rethink everything once we see this reality. We even see the reason for creation in the first place is for the praise of his name. This is Jesus's world, if you want to say it that way. What about the God of the Old Testament? Do we have to rethink what we mean when we say God, once we see this reality that Jesus is the eternal son? We see, after John 1, the God who said, let there be lights, the God who comes down on Mount Sinai, the God who split the Red Sea, the God who filled the temple of Israel, the God of the Old Testament is a father And I don't mean in the analogy sense. He is an eternal father. He's not just an all-powerful God who's like a father. Jesus is not bringing another analogy of his care. God is the eternal father of the eternal son. In fact, in the early church, in the first four or five centuries, when they're debating the Trinity, when that's kind of the, the, heyday, the, the debate of the day, one of the things that guys like Athanasius, the ones leading the, the Orthodox fight for the Trinity, one of the things they said over and over again is, if Jesus isn't eternally God, which that was in question, Arius the heretic said, he's almost God. He's just the first created being. So he's just awesome. He's the best version of us. And so he can lead us to God. And Arius, or Athanasius and everybody else said, if that's true, If he's not the eternal son, God isn't an eternal father. And they said, when you call God father, you're actually saying the thing that's closest to his nature because he's always been a father. He was a father even before he said, let there be light. It's more proper to call God father than it is to call him creator because he is the eternal father. That's what we see when Jesus shows up and we see that he is the eternal son. J.I. Packer says this, Father is the Christian name for God. He says later, if you want to sum up the whole New Testament teaching, you can summarize the whole New Testament, J.I. Packer said like this, it is a revelation of the fatherhood of the holy creator. So when Jesus shows up, he's not just saying, I'm here to save you from your sins. He's saying, I'm here that you might rethink everything and center it on me. Creation, that was all me. Your God, that's my father. He's an eternal father. And he's not just giving God a new title. Again, it's not just all-powerful father, creator. We're just slapping titles on God's name. Jesus is showing who God is before Genesis 1. Jesus gives us a glimpse into Genesis 0, if you will. Before time existed, if you want your brain to twist a little bit, Jesus is showing us God is the eternal father who has, from before the foundation of the world, been pouring out his glorious, perfect love on his glorious, perfect son. And the son has been, in turn, eternally glorifying the father. That's what was happening in eternity past. Look at John 17, as Jesus is about to go to the cross and he's praying to the father, giving us a window into the life of our Trinitarian God. Father, I desire that they also, speaking of his disciples, whom you have given me may be where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So here's why it makes a difference to you. When you say God is love, do you imagine a big floating ball of an attribute? 
an impersonal, abstract, floating God of love, or do you picture the Father eternally pouring out his love on the Son? One is biblical, one is ridiculous. One will leave you cold. You have an impersonal God who maybe pays attention to you if you're working hard enough to gain his favor. One is the God of the Bible who the Son has come to say, I want to show you what the Father's like. I want to come show you who you're praying to. What's the first thing he teaches us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount? Father in heaven. That's why it makes a difference. Jesus is revealing who God is, the Father who's been eternally loving the Son. In Matthew 4 at Jesus' baptism, when we see the heavens pulled open, And the Father peer through at Jesus next to John the Baptist and declare for all to hear, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We are hearing something that has been screamed from the Father's lips for all eternity. This is who God is. Michael Reeves wrote this speaking of the Father-Son relationship. Actually, relationship is putting it mildly. The father loves his son with a unique and quite dazzling intensity. He did so from before the foundations of the world, and now he rejoices to let all the world hear. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the son is the one, whom he, is the one he loves, my chosen one in whom I delight, the one he yearns to glorify. As such, the son is the one from whom he does everything, his alpha and omega. All things would be created for him, their heir. This is our God. One of my biggest uh, pet peeves is to light a word. When we say trinity, you think of a math problem. One God, three persons, each one fully God, and you just juxtapose oneness and threeness, and then you're like, let's move on to the good stuff of justification by faith. And the Bible is screaming, your Trinitarian God is the good stuff. This is the life of God you're being brought into, the eternal Father eternally loving his Son. Michael Reeves says this, Indeed, in the triune God is the love behind all love, the life behind all life, the music behind all music, the beauty behind all beauty, the joy behind all joy. So if you have that kind of impersonal, abstract view of God where he's just kind of a floating ball of power and love and all these attributes that we're labeling him with, let this kind of shatter that and actually see your unbelievably, intensely personal God so that when God loves you, you're not just picturing a powerful being who's deciding to be nice to you. You're seeing your father who has been eternally loving his son, pouring out that same love on you because you've been united to his son. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. So Jesus comes and reveals who he is and as a result, who God is, that he's the eternal father. And not only that, he comes to reveal the heart of the father. He's not just coming to reveal the fact that Jesus is a father. He's here to reveal the heart of the father. We've already seen children are meant to represent their parents. Adam, Eve, Israel were all meant to represent their parents and no one perfectly represents his father like the exact image, right? The eternal son who perfectly represents the father. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to us or sorry, spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, or follow Jesus' own words in John 14. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. You want to know exactly what the father is like? Look at the son. When you see the son being moved by compassion, when you see the son stopping on his journey to converse with and encourage the leper, 
when you see the son eating with sinners and the lowly and the rejected and the forgotten, you are getting a glimpse into the heart of the father. So Jesus comes to reveal the reality that God is father, that he's eternally his father. He's showing us the heart of the father. But so far, we've just been talking about God, right? Our eternal triune God, the father, the son, the spirit. What about us, right? How does this actually uh, change us? Why, or maybe I'll ask it this way. Why did the son leave the father's side? Or why did the father, John 3.16, send his son into the world? To forgive our sins, yes. To take away the wrath that is about to be poured out over our heads, yes. To defeat the enemy, to crush the head of the serpent, yes. But ultimately, ultimately, to make us children of the Father. John 1, 12, this glorious first chapter of John. The beginning was the Word, Word was with God, Word was God, Word became flesh, dwelt among us. Verse 12, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of man, but of God. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me first draws him. So people coming to Jesus to follow him, to find salvation in him, and Jesus is saying, you can't do that unless the Father who sent me here to get you first draws you. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice he doesn't say, I'm the way to forgiveness, or I'm the way to heaven, or I'm the way to not hell. He says, I'm the way to the Father. I've come, I've been sent by the Father to lead you back to the Father. So he's not just here to forgive sinners. He's here so that forgiven sinners might be adopted as sons and daughters. You're forgiven, but all that's doing is removing a negative. What's the positive of salvation? What is it that makes us sing for joy? It's that we're wiped clean, yes, but we're wiped clean so that we can come to God and say, Abba, Father, as adopted children. You see that. Notice how God and salvation are not different things. This is kind of the, the unintended consequence of we study God and we get all our answers right. And then again, we move on and say, let's talk about the riches of salvation. The scriptures say, your glorious God is your salvation. This is eternal life, that they may know God. The God of all joy, the God of all love. You might be brought into his family and share in fellowship with him. I'm getting ahead of myself again. J.I. Packer. Everything that Christ taught Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Your God, your Father has been eternally loving His Son, who's been eternally glorifying the Father by the power of the Spirit, and you, your salvation is being adopted into that fellowship, being brought to the Father as a child, not just another analogy as a child united to the Son. Now, here's the key question. How? How can he do that? Is he just coming down and grabbing us by the hand and saying, let's go back? Is it that easy? Are we just sheep that have kind of lost our way and we just need someone to guide us back as if the, the problem, our main problem is directions? Remember Genesis 3. We're not just lost. We are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature sons of disobedience. We are by nature sons of the evil one. We're cut off. We're separated. We've been cast out. And so God sends his eternal son who goes to the cross and cries out this in Matthew 27. We're going to get a glimpse here into the nature of Jesus' suffering on the cross. Look at Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, 
there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus... cried out in a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's the question we need to wrestle with. Why is Jesus crying out in agony? Is it because of three nails? Crucifixion is an agonizing way to die, but church history is filled with martyrs who died worse, if I can dare say that who were crucified, beaten, and then burned on their crosses, and many of them did it singing. Is it the physical pain that is causing the eternal son to cry out in agony? No. So what is causing Jesus to cry out? John 1.18 tells us that He's the eternal son who, your ESV will say, has always been at the father's side. Uh, the King James kind of reflects the Greek a bit more. It's a rare time where the King James is more accurate. It says, he's the eternal son who has always been resting in the bosom of the father. And what we're seeing happening on the cross is the eternal son who has always been under the infinite fountain of his father's love and has always been perfectly glorifying the Father. There's never been a love like this that's shared between the Father and the Son. As I heard one pastor say, he makes the greatest marriage in the history of the world look like a drop in the Atlantic Ocean. There's never been a more perfect union than the Father and the Son. There's never been more perfect glorifying than the Father and the Son. And to quote Ian Guid, the one who from all eternity has dwelt in the bosom of the Father, was thereby exiled from his presence. The Son, who has always enjoyed his Father's glorious nearness, is being forsaken, so that you could be adopted. The one who's always been resting in the Father's bosom is being cast out so that you could be brought in. Isaiah 53, he's cut off. It was the will of God to crush him. You want a glimpse into the infinity of the son's suffering. Here it is. He's forsaken by his father so that you and I could be brought in and adopted. The only one who's ever actually perfectly obeyed. The only one who's ever actually loved the Lord, his father, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Never been a second in eternity where that hasn't been. The reality is forsaken because of our disobedience, so that we might be forgiven and adopted. He cries out, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? So that you and I could hear for all eternity, my child, my child, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then he cries out, it is finished. And he goes into the tomb and at the resurrection, we looked at this actually last Easter, when Jesus is raised, especially in the Gospel of John, uh, John is showing what Jesus has just purchased for us on the cross, what Jesus has just bought us on the cross. And we see this in his first kind of encounter. He encounters Mary, then he encounters doubting Thomas. We'll look at that this Easter, by the way. Then he encounters Peter. And when he encountered Mary, he says this, Jesus said to her, she, she sees that it's him. She didn't recognize him at first. Then he says her name, and uh, she clings to him in joy. And uh, she, he, he says this as she's clinging to him. Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go and tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, which is the first time that's ever been said. God has been your God up until this point. Post the cross, post your penalty being paid by the son crying out in agony as he is forsaken. Now, as Jesus says, my father, so you can say, my father. I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. Galatians 3.26 for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Do you see what he's done? 
Do you see the glory of your salvation? He is coming. As you are united to the Son, all that he has is yours. All the infinite rich blessings of heaven are yours, and his Father is yours. You are not just a forgiven sinner. You are a, as we saw in Hosea, child of the living God. Romans 8, 15. This is going to be tough. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. For the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Galatians 4, 3. For in the same way, we also, when we were, past tense, children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, John 3, 16, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are, present tense, sons, we have, or God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Do you see what the goal of your salvation is? Forgiven to get you to this. Adoption as sons, the Spirit of God dwelling in your hearts so that as Christ cries, Abba, Father, so you can cry, Abba, Father. J.I. Packer again says this, adoption, this reality that we're talking about, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of of the relationship, to be right with God the judge is a great thing. To say there's no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus is a great, glorious thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Do you see what your salvation is? Children of the living God. Do you see who your God is, children of the living God? Let's take it one step further. It gets better, if that were possible. He's not just our Father, and we're not just His children, but rather, as we are united to the Son and become His adopted children, we get to share in the glorious fellowship that the Father and the Son have shared in for all eternity. You are united to the Son, and as the Father's love has been pouring out on him for all eternity, so now the Father's love pours out on you. Michael Reeves again says, as the Father looks with pleasure and delight on his perfect Son, so he looks with pleasure and delight on all those who are in him. John 17, again, Jesus praying to the Father, I do not ask for these only but also those who will believe in me through their word. So there's you, Jesus praying for you. You have believed in Jesus through the word of the apostles and 2,000 years of people repeating the words of the apostles. I do not ask for these only, but also those who believe in their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. If you would like a passage to meditate on for the rest of your life, there it is. Alan Chapel. It's an Australian professor commenting on this passage in John 17 says this. This tells us that God binds us to himself in a deep personal relationship. This relationship is like those that are internal to him. 
Just as the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, so the Son is in us, and we are in God. Nothing less than the love the Father has for the Son is in us, and the glory the Father gave the Son has been given to us. It is as though the inner life of the triune God is so rich that it spills over into his relationship with us. We are caught up in the most basic and foundational of all realities, the relationship that makes God who he is. To have a part in something so good, so rich, and so real is an immense privilege which I think is the understatement of the century. Do you see how much sweeter this is than we're going to get a mansion in heaven one day or we're going to get not hell one day? Do you see what the eternal son has come to bring you into? The love of the father that he has enjoyed for all of eternity. Don't make the mistake and miss all these riches, of just thinking your adoption is just salvation paperwork, of just thinking it's a state, but rather as you are united to the Son and His Spirit is sent into your heart by the Father, as He cries, Abba, Father, so you cry, Abba, Father, and as the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, so the Father says to you, this is my beloved Son, This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased because you've been united to the Son. 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. So you want to see, what what is God loving you? We say that all the time. God loves me. What does that mean? What kind of love is that, John? 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. The love that has been poured out on the Son from the Father is poured out on you, and we don't have time, but read Romans 8. I think I have it in there in your notes. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from it. As if it was under threat, Paul wants to make absolutely sure you know this is secure forever. So this is what salvation is. This is who God is, or we should say this is who salvation is. Being brought into the life that is in him and enjoying him. And this is also the salvation that we never move on from. The Christian life is not get saved and then go do other things. The Christian life is being brought into fellowship with God and growing deeper and deeper and deeper into that fellowship. 1 John 1, verse 3, skip down to verse 3. That which we have seen, which we have heard, we proclaimed also to you that you may too have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. Fellowship and communion with God is not a nice add-on to your Christianity. It's not God saved you and wants you to go do a bunch of stuff and you get the side benefit of knowing him and delighting in him. It is Christianity. It is the goal of why you've been saved, to know him, to fellowship with him. J.I. Packer, again, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Is the thought of being God's child and him being your father what prompts and controls every action that you make? This isn't just another piece. This is what Christianity is. Well, you might be thinking, what about glorifying God, right? Isn't that the whole point? Well, the question then would be, how do we 
glorify God. West, the Westminster Catechism says, you know, what's the chief end of man? Why are we created? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And C.S. Lewis, I think, perfectly ties these together, as he often does, says this. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. To fully enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Or if you know the famous John Piper Desiring God slogan, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. They're picking up on this idea that the nature of our Christian life is to come share in the glorious fellowship that is in God and enjoy him and delight in him. Why do you think I yell that at you every week? To get your eyes up and gaze at the beauty of the Lord and drink in his fellowship? Is it just because I'm the crying preacher? I'm the emotionally wired one? No, I mean, that's sure. But it's because this is what Christianity is. And everything else flows from it. You're going to evangelize when your heart is so full of his glory that you can't help but share it. You're going to kill sin, not because you know, oh, I'm a Christian now and I've got new rules to follow, but when you taste and see his sweetness and you begin to actually hate, have a growing distaste for any sin that would dare turn your eyes away from him. This is the core of your Christian life that everything else is going to flow from knowing and delighting in him, sharing in the same love that the Father has poured out on the Son for all eternity. And that, by the way, is what you will be doing for all of eternity. Moses, in the famous Exodus 34 story, when he's just overwhelmed with God's forgiving goodness, he forgave Israel after their golden calf rebellion, and he cries out, what? Show me your glory. I want to see your face. I want to see who is a God who forgives such wretched, sinful people. And God says, you can't. You'll die. But here's what I'll do. I'll pass before you and declare my name. You can't see my face, but I'll pass before you and tell you what I'm like. And in Revelation 22, as we get the final crescendo of our eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, I have it there, but the crescendo of the new Jerusalem comes down. The dwelling place of God will be with man. Rivers will go out. That will be the healing of the nations. The tree of life is back there. What's the crescendo? And we will see his face. We will gaze upon his beauty for all of eternity and enjoy him with ever-increasing, uninterrupted satisfaction in him as his glorious children. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. See with what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So, practical. I'm going to frustrate you, I think. Uh, we're running long time, so I'll go quickly and then maybe we'll have time for one question. The most wonderful truths are the most difficult for me to, to drill down to like practical examples because it... it quite literally affects every moment of your life. You grasp this, your job will never be the same. You grasp this, you'll never talk to your kids the same way again. You'll never look at another human being the same way again. You'll never endure suffering the same way again. You'll never think about pleasure the same way again if you grasp who your triune God is. So my one application point is just meditate, contemplate this reality. And by meditate, I don't mean Eastern, empty your mind to feel nirvana. I mean, fill your mind with the glorious truth of God. And so let me end with three. Actually, we won't have time for questions. Let me end with three. I'm sorry. Email me with questions and we'll grab coffee. Three figures from church history that encourage you along this application point to meditate, to just fill your mind with this until you're never the same. The first is J.I. Packer, who we've, he's been helping us out a lot as we've gone through. J.I. Packer, uh, he called meditating on the reality of, uh, of adoption, that we're children of God, that God is our Father, the, the Christian's secret to the Christian life and the God-honoring life. He says this, say it over and over to yourself. First thing in the morning, the last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, anytime your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is all utterly and completely true. And he actually gives six things to meditate on. I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. It's J.I. Packer's advice. Every spare second of your life, fill that 
fill your mind with those truths. Number two, John Owen, a famous Puritan theologian, says this about just washing your mind with this reality of the Father's love for the Son, you sharing in because you're united to the Son. He says this, by the way, I edited this because it was a lot of vows and thuses and betwixt and all those sorts of things. I, I, I modernized uh, our buddy Owen a little bit. Uh, so if it's worse, it's my fault. So much, so much as we see the love of God, so much shall we delight in him and no more. Every other discovery of God without this, without the love of God, will, will but make the soul flee from him. But if the heart would be taken up with the supremacy of the Father's love, it cannot choose but to be overpowered, conquered, and love him. This, if anything, will work in us to make our dwelling with him. If the love of the Father will not make a child delight in him, what will? Practice this then. Exercise your thoughts on this very thing, the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father, and see if your heart won't be changed to delight in him. I dare boldly say believers will find it as thrilling a journey as they ever went on in their lives. Sit down a little at the fountain and you will quickly have a further discovery of the sweetness of the streams. You who have run from him will not be able after a while to keep at a distance for a moment. And then lastly, Robert Murray McShane, something you've heard before, something you'll hear a billion more times or as long as I'm a pastor here. This is hanging in my office because I think it, beautifully encapsulates the Christian life. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settle on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with the heart-ravishing sense of sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so that there will be no more room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. So what I will implore you towards as you go from here is don't let another day go by until you've, as Owen said, sat at the sweetness of the stream. Just try it. You think this is all ridiculous? Just sit and contemplate the love of the Father. And like Owen said, see if your heart's not changed. See if you can keep far away for very long. Just try it to think through every little piece of your life in light of the Father's infinite love and see if your heart isn't actually changed to delight in him. And then see if tending to the root doesn't bring the fruit of the Spirit you won't be kinder just by trying to be kinder. You'll be kinder by sitting at the feet of Jesus and drinking in the Father's love. You won't be more patient just by gritting your teeth. I mean, maybe you'll squeak out a few extra seconds of not blowing up. You'll be more patient when you sit before the Father and see how patient he's been with you. You won't have a longing for missions and for your neighbors to know the Lord just by knowing it's a task that you should do but you sit beneath the glory of God that will one day cover the earth as the water covers the sea and you'll talk to your neighbor because you'll delight to share in what you love. This is who your God is. This is what Christianity is and it's the core of every action you will do in Christ Jesus. I've got resources there for you. If you think I'm making this up, you're like, where did you, Jared get all this stuff? There it is down at the bottom. I'd love to... If you buy these books, I'll grab coffee. I'd love to read them with you, by the way. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we uh, are left where we're often left any time we just look at your word and see who you are, and that is to say, <laughs> who is a God like this? And what is man that you're mindful of him? You could have been just and wiped us out. You didn't need to say, let there be light. You are perfectly happy in eternity with your son and with your spirit, yet you did. Your love overflowed into 
creation. And when we spit in your face, your love continues to overflow by sending your son. And so I just pray, as, as we just always beg you to change our hearts, not to just perform better or not to just have a different result in our lives, but that we might love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength because we've seen how good you are and how sweet you are and how lovely you are and how glorious your son is. I pray that your spirit would fix our eyes on him and that we would learn what it means to to live in light of your glorious love. Please do that miracle in our church. Let that be the mark of our lives, not that we're this or that or whatever, but that we delight in our God and Savior. We glorify you and enjoy him forever because we have tasted and seen of your goodness. We pray that in your son's glorious name. Amen.